Today we're talking about the upside-down math of taxpayer-funded job growth and learning how promises made turn into profits kept. That is Telekinetic. yourself. Hello again. I am Mitch. You are here. And Greg Leroy is in Washington, D.C. as executive director of Good Jobs First, a resource center promoting corporate and government accountability in economic development. Here's a question. How much would you pay me to bring a thousand jobs to your town? As society has moved from the agrarian age through the industrial and into the information age, we've increasingly decoupled location from labor. And as our esteemed guest will illuminate, crony capitalism has pounced on that opportunity to turn the promise of labor into appreciating assets because, hey, these thousand jobs could go anywhere. If you want me to bring them to you, it's going to cost you. In fact, it might cost you more than the jobs are worth. Let's find out what happens when the jobs come to town with Greg Leroy. Hey, Mitch, how are you? Greg, I'm doing well. Welcome to the show. Thank you. This is an interesting topic just in general to me. And I've also used a lot of references and uh, talking points from your organization, Good Jobs First, for years now as, a, as an oh. advocate of uh, telecommuting and, <laughs> and mobility and, and better designed urban cores and things of that nature. So it, uh, a lot of it is helpful in that, in that sense, but particularly to the, the dynamic of this show where we talk about human progress and how that impacts human movement. One of the things that I, I find really interesting about what you guys cover is that as technology and, and industry advance to a point where jobs become a lot less intrinsically tied to the location they're in, like if you're not mining coal in West Virginia, right. if you're building computers, then you could probably do that in most places in the country, right? So the portability of the job now becomes an asset that can go anywhere. And, and now the stakes become a whole different kind of ballgame. And the, the economic and political whirlwind around that, as I'm sure you'll point out, <laughs> can, yeah. get, can get rather comical and uh, ass backwards. So I'm, I'm just curious to help people get a little more informed on that and what you guys do. And then just a little bit more detail into the background of why these kinds of programs and incentives happen, who they benefit, who thinks they're benefiting and isn't benefiting. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so states and cities spend an estimated $70 billion a year in economic development incentives. That is different kinds of subsidies given to individual companies. They affect every kind of tax or fee that a company might normally pay to support public services. Property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, all the same kinds of taxes you and I pay, companies should also be paying too to support the economy, support public services. But in the name of economic development, many of those taxes go away sometimes forever. Mm. (laughs) Um, Companies get pay no sales tax on their machinery and equipment and building materials when they build new facilities in many cases. They don't pay property taxes for 10 years or 20 years. They get big income tax breaks based on how much money they invest or how many people they hire. 
In some cases, they actually get other people's money. In about a third of the states, some companies actually get some of their employees' state personal income taxes. <laughs> we call that paying taxes to the boss. Yeah, it's really kind of over the top. Without people's knowledge or consent, uh, they, they see, you know, $35 deducted for their state income tax on their pay stub. But at the end of the day, that money doesn't really go to the state treasury. It ends up back with the company uh, in, in about a third of the states. So tax break industrial complex, as we jokingly call it, has a long history and a lot of moving parts. It dates back to the late 1930s when the Mississippi invented the first incentive, which was specifically designed to lure companies from, from the Midwest and the Northeast. Mm. And when the first site location consulting company was born, that is a company that specializes in helping companies play the system and create the system. It was a company called Fantas Factory Locating Service based in New York City originally. Uh, today, there's about 300 of those firms oh, wow. uh, that do this. Some of them are big and regional or even national, international. Some are very niche and, and specific. But we have a system that's been created over the years where it's a corporate dominated system is the easiest way to explain it, right? Companies control the information about what really matters to their search. And that obscures what's really going on, which is that the thing that really drives where companies choose to expand or locate are the business basics. That is, if you look at the spreadsheet that companies create to compare places as they shop for locations and they compare costs as well as benefits, on the cost side of the ledger, all state and local taxes combined, all the property sales and income taxes combined, come to 1.8% of their total cost structure, Wow! which is like pocket lint, right? Yeah. Which is to say big cost factors, occupancy, raw materials, labor, IT, energy, logistics, transportation. Obviously, those numbers vary a lot depending on the nature of the company and the business, but, but tiny changes in those big cost variables dwarf anything you can do with the tax code. Right. And that's before you weigh the benefits, right? Companies, we know lots of companies pay premiums to go places because they need an educated workforce. They need proximity to great infrastructure. They need proximity to airports and transit hubs and other things that give them better access to labor markets, et cetera, right? That's, that's the truth of the site location. But when the, when the system is dominated by companies and site location consultants, they can confuse the public. There's a lot of disinformation, misinformation out there about what really matters. Public officials, all they know is that somebody knocks on their door one day and says, I might have 500 jobs for you. What do you got for us? You know, with their right, handout, yeah. essentially. The public official doesn't, isn't reminded that the only reason this conversation is happening is because her location has the business basics. It's an inherently profitable location for the company. It's got the labor force and the proximity to markets and customers and whatever else it is that the company really needs. All they know is somebody might help her get reelected because she's able to cut a ribbon on a deal that's going to have 500 new jobs in the community. Right. Yeah. That's the political calculus here, right? We know that politicians are more prone to giving away the store when they're closer to, to reelection time. We know that when the economy is depressed and there's fewer deals for states and cities to compete for, that they're more prone to overspending, like Amazon HQ2, the, the crazy public auction that we saw. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the public outcry over the Amazon HQ2 PR stunt, if, if everybody knew that that whole process happens hundreds of times a year, 
but they're all secret, <laughs> right? That was only the sixth time in U.S. history that an auction like that was public. Yeah, People understood that that same dynamic plays out hundreds of times behind non-disclosure agreements and secret site visits. I think there'd be pitchforks at City Hall because I think Amazon ended up taking one of the very smallest incentive packages that was offered, the Virginia package. It ran away from one of the richest ones in New York that it got. We know they had many much bigger ones from Pittsburgh and Maryland and St. Louis, seven, eight billion dollars and and didn't land up there. So it's a very it's a very big teachable moment about what really matters (laughs) and the willingness of a company to take a small incentive package in a high cost market uh, because that's that's where the value is. To your point, it should be a fairly easy lesson for the average taxpayer to, to learn, which is, you know, you're unlikely to move yourself and your family to a place where you have, you get some minor incentive. I mean, there in, in remote work, there are a lot of cities doing relocation incentives of, you know, 10 grand, things like that. And those are nice, right? But you, you aren't going to move there if you don't like the education system, the infrastructure, the neighborhoods, things of that nature, right? And it makes perfect sense that the same goes for corporations, right? And yet, to your point, a lot of the politicking around this, I would assume, succeeds because jobs sound like such a magnificent thing that they're among that that kind of upper echelon of of protected protected values to society that we, that we say you know no amount of money is too much for jobs jobs are wonderful and we need them so I don't care what it costs make the jobs and that's where you get your some of you some of the numbers I've always referenced from from you guys about the the average taxpayer costs for x job you know looking at that and saying even on the simple math of that saying okay, well, that's going to be 10 or 20 years before that job is actually like profitable to the community, which is a preposterous right. concept. Yeah, we, we keep a, a subset of deals. That, so we have a big database called Subsidy Tracker, where we've gotten many hundreds of thousands of deals uh, from state and local government records because we've succeeded in, in convincing governments to, to disclose better that information. That's it's a great resource, by the way. I use it. I point people to it all the time, and it, everyone should check it out. Oh, for sure. Thank you. If you're even remotely curious about this, you should check out the subsidy tracker. Yeah. Many new agitations have taken root <laughs> when people <laughs> said, "There's too many zeros there." That's not. How could it be true? We keep a subset of those deals, about 400 that we call mega deals. These are yeah. deals where individual transactions cost more than 50 million, and sometimes hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. for one facility, one transaction, one project. And the last time we ran the math on those mega deals, for those that can be price tagged, the average cost per job was $658,000. That is incredible. To your point. (laughs) So these are guaranteed losers for taxpayers, right? Because to break even, you would have to have the average worker at a microchip fabrication plant or a chemical plant or a data center or whatever pay over their working lifetime, $658,000 more in state and local taxes than they and their family consumed in public services. Yeah, And there's just no state that taxes people <laughs> that, right. that rate. I mean, they, yeah. so when deals are that expensive, the only thing we can say for sure is happening is that there's a big transfer of wealth going on from taxpayers to shareholders. That's the only thing we can say for sure is happening there, whether there's good ripple effects, whether it's a catalytic event, whether there's a, you know, a seeding event that attracts other companies or, or, you know, changes, you know, the the regional economy. 
those are all debatable based on the specifics of the deal. But but all we can say for sure is there's a big transfer of wealth happening. Right. All the things you just listed there would be the the counterpoints that folks bring up, right? Like, oh, it'll do this, it'll do that. But I think to the points you guys have raised, there's also a lot to be said that it sounds like the currency is jobs when politicians are talking about it and corporations are talking about it. But a lot of times the currency is the promise of jobs, which often never actually materialize or materialize at, uh, you know, one tenth of the of the volume that they were supposed to. And like Foxconn, I think, is one of the most recent examples of that yes. right in Wisconsin. And, and yet, as as it is with any piece of new information that comes into the world, the, you know, the original piece is always the piece that resonates the most. And then when someone comes back with a uh, redactment or a correction, even if that correction is Hey, I know we said it was going to be a thousand jobs, but it's just twelve. <laughs> it somehow, it somehow doesn't doesn't have the same resonance, and that that is troubling, considering that taxpayers are still on the hook for a lot of that money. It's true, and I mean, Foxconn is a case study in this process because this was one of the most purely political deals. Just mm-hmm. to remind people, in 2017, <clears throat> soon after taking office, then President Trump directly helped Terry Gao, who was then the chairman of Foxconn, the big company, Taiwanese-based company that produces iPhones and in, in lots of other electronics, mostly in China, helped the company stage a multi-state auction for a facility that was going to make big liquid crystal display uh, screens, even though there's no history of those ever being produced <laughs> anywhere outside Southeast <laughs> Asia, uh, no supply chain in this hemisphere. And it ended up in a district of the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, in a state where the governor was running for re-election, Scott Walker, despite a very controversial record of uh, scandals at his own privatized economic development corporation called the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, you know, with a deal announced in the White House. We've never had a president participate in this so-called second war among the states. Mm. And I should add, this second war among the states is not a new frame. I don't take any credit for that. That was the cover story in Business Week. In 1976, <laughs> that's how long this issue has been plaguing our governors and our mayors, county executives. And then the, the deal never pans out, right? It's supposed to be 13,000 jobs. It's supposed to be a massive capital input. It's supposed to be this massive campus with this people getting evicted with eminent domain so that they can parcel land together and bring in a bunch of new water lines and highways. And the local governments are on the hook for a bunch of debt now that service a facility that's barely materialized with a tiny fraction of the jobs, about 10%. Mm -hmm. You had it, you had it right. And, you know, the state has renegotiated its deal, but the local governments are really still very vulnerable. I've been screaming about the local governments have to get protected and, and made whole because they're really, um, they've put a lot of money up front compared to the state. Yeah. But it's hardly the only such failure. I mean, North Carolina had a big deal, Back in 2004, they rushed this big secret deal through the state legislature in a single day. The deal was worth almost a quarter of a billion dollars. The factory was going to, did for five years, assemble all kinds of laptops and peripherals uh, for Dell, the computer company. But all the inputs for the factory came from Asia. There was never a stateside supply chain. It had no ripple effects, some upstream ripple effects in terms of job creation Unlike like an, an auto assembly plant, like with lots of auto parts jobs, right? That's that's kind of the, the theory behind subsidizing an auto assembly factory is you get even more parts jobs right? because there's so many thousands of things that go into a car. 
but that was never true of the Dell plant and it closed after five years uh, mm-hmm. because they changed their strategy. So to us, the lesson from both of these episodes from both Foxconn and Dell is don't put lots of eggs in any one corporate basket. You, you can't control what the company's going to do. You can't control how they may be leapfrogged by somebody else's technology two years, two years from now. You don't know if the company's going to get gobbled up by some other company and they're going to close half the plants to right. pay down the debt for the acquisition. You just can't control any of that stuff. The best thing to do is to create a, an environment that's great for young, promising companies. And, and certainly states like North Carolina and areas like Austin, Texas are great examples of this where you you spend lots of money on your computer engineering programs or your material sciences programs or your biotechnology programs or whatever it is. So that you're graduating lots of brainiac PhDs or MAs in those fields. You help little companies adopt new technology. You help them acquire insurance affordably. You help them promote exports. You help them uh, cross-train people on uh, technology diffusion. And thereby, you make your town more sticky for those companies, right? Because there's a value proposition. They benefit from being there because you're meeting their needs for growth. And they're not going to leave. They're going to stay there and they're going to grow because you brought them to the dance, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, that's that's a much safer investment in economic development, we think. That's a great way to put it, the stickiness of it. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, where this should be an opportunity based on the the technological progress that we've made industrially to have those kind of environments where, you know, it used to be the stickiness was there is a mine here or there are raw resources here. That's it. Here's your company town. Deal with it. Right. <laughs> and now and now the concept should be, oh, we need, you know, we need to build stickiness. And the stickiness is, is life enjoyable and rewarding and educational and healthy here? And those are all things that we want as kind of like Maslow's or the, or the ultimate kind of hierarchy of needs anyway. Yes. Which, Sounds like we should be making progress. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, that sounds like we've done we've done well in society if that's what we're what we're trying to do with our our regions and our cities now. But to your point, when you can bypass all that and just say jobs, and people will scramble to feed the beast uh, in whatever way they can get that number up, um, even if it is just a, an empty promise at the end of the day, is troubling. I was going to ask you if you had any other kind of top of mind egregious examples. And I, I know one that I always call out that I really like, which kind of, I think speaks to one of your points about um, states having to fight each other is this whole Kansas city border thing between Kansas and Missouri, but that over the course of a decade, (laughs) there was $320 million spent to basically battle for the relocation of jobs on either side of the border. That's right. And 6,000 jobs during that period went, went to one state and 5,500 went to the other state. So it's, <laughs> yes. a, so it's a net of 500 jobs that were moved for $320 million over a decade, which is just incredible. But I have to imagine countless politicians won election or re-election during that period based on what is basically a, a, a non-factor at this point. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story with a good ending. So um, yes, over a decade, a third of a billion dollars got wasted by states, by the two states, especially, and local governments basically changing people's commuting route in the morning. Most of these relocations did not involve expansions or growth. They literally just changed the address of the workplace. Uh, Applebee's did it twice. Applebee's headquarters did it twice (laughs) before moving to California. So 10 years ago, a group of local business leaders, 17 local business leaders, 
issued a scathing public letter to governors of the states basically saying, quit it. We're getting ripped off. We 17 companies happen to have interests on both sides of the state line. We believe in both states. But you're letting a small subset of companies game the system and rip us off because one of you is abating your taxes to lure the companies. The other state is losing tax base when that happens. And therefore, we, the ones who aren't gaming the system, are getting stuck with higher taxes and lousier services. Yeah. You know, stop doing it. And to their credit, the states finally got their act together. Um, Missouri's legislature first enacted a a legally binding offer in 2014, which they renewed in 2018, which the Kansas governor administratively was uh, legally able to reciprocate in 2019. So that in in two years ago now, roughly, the states of Missouri and Kansas signed, had a legally binding deal, and they still have it, saying state incentive dollars cannot be used in the Kansas City metro area to lure jobs back and forth. It's, mm. it's not legal anymore. And that's really cooled off the war there. So I'm looking at New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. I'm looking at yeah. Memphis and nearby DeSoto County in Mississippi. I'm looking at Illinois and Wisconsin and Indiana, right? There's all these other hot spots in the country where the same dynamic plays out. There's lots of other examples where we think governors should be copying this template. I was going to say, what are some of the other policies you've seen that you think, you know, for any governors or other or local officials listening, what are some of the policies that, that you look at and you say like, all right, this is this is going to work or this is this is a better approach to how how job creation should function? Well, you know, at the bedrock is disclosure, company specific, deal specific disclosure online so that everybody can see where the money went and and then over time how the deal's playing out, what what the money produced in terms of jobs and wages, benefits. We think robust disclosure has a great antiseptic value and also just a deterrent value because, frankly, this is a business fairness issue, right? This, mm. th- These programs are dominated by big businesses. They're not doing very much for small businesses and entrepreneurship. We have a crisis of entrepreneurship in this country. There's competing arguments about why, but everybody agrees that you know, for the last 20 years, the, our new rate of startups, our new rate of gazelles, you know, rapidly growing young companies, uh, which are very important for job creation overall, are in trouble and way behind where they used to be 20 years ago. So uh, we need to redirect our attention to small businesses, especially those that were harmed most by the pandemic, get them back on their feet, restore their support systems, you know, give them, give them a fighting chance to get going again. That, to me, is the priority. There's other proven uh, policies as well. So clawbacks, that is money back guarantee language, or similarly, the the equivalent is also structuring deals in what's called performance-based ways. That is a company doesn't get its subsidy until it delivers on its end of the deal. Right. Job creation, capital investment, training, whatever. Ironically, the state of Wisconsin's deal with Foxconn is performance-based. And so the state has never really paid anything to the company because the company wasn't performing. Mm. I wasn't hiring. It wasn't investing enough. But at the local level, the the opposite was true. And that's why the local governments are in trouble. Uh, Job quality standards is another policy. And by this, we mean both during the construction phase, as well as during the permanent hiring of of permanent jobs, those jobs should pay at least as good as the market. That is the same kinds of jobs in the same industry in the same labor market. We should not be paying companies to pull wages down. (laughs) Like like we're subsidizing Amazon right now in hundreds of facilities around the country to pull down warehouse wages. 
I think it's completely antithetical to the theory of economic development that we're paying Amazon to do that. Yeah. You need to raise the bar about the requirements you attach to these incentive programs, including the greenness of them, right? We don't think anything should get built with incentives that's not lead compliant or equivalent. I know there's competing standards out there, but but green building standards. Right. Uh, we don't think anything should get rehabbed or expanded unless it's uh, green building standards. Incentives that are given for companies that are in metro areas that have public transit should not be granted unless they're close to frequently tra- traversed uh, transit routes so yeah. that people have a choice about how to get to work and people who don't own a car can have a chance to get out of poverty. Right. We think these are no-brainers. As someone who works quite a bit in mobility, we have that conversation a lot around parking, uh, which is the mm. same. Actually, I mean, it's pretty much in line exactly with one of the points you mentioned there, right? It's just the idea that we always feel like it should be more obvious to the average taxpayer that if a building goes up in a downtown core and then you incentivize or, or give a tax abatement on them building a parking structure or, or worse, a large parking lot, surface lot, it should be easy to see that like, okay, well, that's space that can't be another building where people could work or can't be where something else useful could be. And it's paying less in taxes for existing. So, you know, what are we actually achieving here? If every time we put up a new building, we need to create empty space for people to go to that building. And that's where, you know, that's where a lot of the pro transit and pro walkable cities arguments come in. And again, that all kind of boils down to what you were talking about, about the stickiness of the city and making it a place that is just generally a, a better value proposition for living and working. We have a crazy example of that, you know, early in its economic development spending spree here, the District of Columbia was giving away big TIF districts, tax increment financing district, which is a diversion of property and sometimes sales taxes. And they gave a $72 million TIF to a developer building a Target store mm. on top of a metro station as if there was going to be foot traffic problems on top of a, yeah. of a metro station. Yeah. And the current requirements at that time required a multi-story parking garage as part of the project. I can't remember if it was like maybe five floors. Mm. And the last I heard, perhaps this has changed, two of those floors were roped off and had never been used <laughs> because obviously people were getting on the metro and it's also a very walkable, dense neighborhood where it's located. And, you know, who needed cars? Uh, so that's another case where poor policies, in that case, probably parking minimums, uh, required people to do things that made no sense, but it's, it's, it's in the books, so you got to do it. By golly. Yeah, we always <laughs> did it that way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to hit you with my hot take here, which uh, for anyone unaware is uh, kind of my straw man argument offered for rebuttal or teardown. So don't feel any uh, qualms about violently disagreeing or, uh, <laughs> or telling me that I'm wrong. My hot take here is that uh, one of my concerns about all this great information that you have out here and the, and what you guys are pursuing is that I, I think a lot of people yearn for uh, identity as much as they do the the stability of something like a job. And so I, I really wonder how many citizens at the end of the day care more about a familiar, a familiar world than a better one. Like to the point that if you actually showed them this information, they might still say, yeah, as long as Foxconn is coming and we can do manufacturing because that's what we do, I'm happy. And I don't care that it actually is a loser financially. <laughs> like I, I, I have legitimate concerns, I guess, that people 
and a lot of it is, you know, obviously played up politically on, on both from politicians and from corporations. Right. But that the identity of, of that, of what people think is their region or, or America in general, right. If it's manufacturing, if it's uh, technology, if it's retail, whatever it may be, that that somehow holds value over top of the actual math of whether or not it actually makes sense to do. Well, so I agree with the idea that people crave familiarity. And, you know, I got into this work accidentally uh, back when the word Rust Belt was being coined and the mm-hmm. best-selling book was The Deindustrialization of America. That This is my accidental career. I learned how to discover that plants that were closing, factories that were closing, had gotten incentives. And we used that as a fight-back tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was living in Chicago at the time, and these were mostly Midwest fights. I agonized over places like Youngstown where people were forced to leave their hometown because there just wasn't any jobs left after the mills began to close. And I think we live in a period of globalization. We live in a period of much higher capital mobility than our parents and grandparents experienced. And I think it's wrenching to families and it creates a great deal of insecurity and, and helps explain a lot of anxiety in the society today. Therefore, we shouldn't be spending our economic development dollars in ways that exacerbates or accelerates hyper-mobile capital. We shouldn't be paying companies to move around. We should be investing in our public goods, our schools, our infrastructure, our community colleges, our universities, our quality of life, our libraries, and our parks as ways to make them attractive for employers or telecommuters or whoever wants to be there and reduces the likelihood that capital will flee and families will be disrupted. Uh, I, I think that's a core value behind good economic development. Yeah. All right. Well said. Good, good stuff. So I want to give you a chance. We already plugged you guys a little bit, but I, uh, I, it's well-deserved. <laughs> so Thank I want to give you a chance to plug anything. If there's anything specific you guys are working on right now that you want to speak to or, or just in general where people can find you guys and learn more. So our, our website is goodjobsfirst.org, all one word, no hyphens. And we have the most popular elements of our data of our website are four databases. We have four big databases now. If you're interested in where the new stimulus money is going, the CARES Act, the Rescue Plan money, maybe the American Jobs Plan, if it gets enacted, you'll see a link to something called COVID Stimulus Watch, where you can see companies that got the money, the the new federal stimulus money. Our most popular database is called Violation Tracker, which is a regulatory database. If you want to see the sins of companies, (laughs) and I mean any kind of sin, uh, you know, antitrust, race and sex discrimination, price gouging, you know, ripping off Uncle Sam. Uh, it's an encyclopedia from hundreds of different state and federal sources about corporate misbehavior and corporate crimes. Mm. It's an extremely popular. It has a huge uh, global uh, user base. If you're looking to look for your community, we have Subsidy Tracker, which you mentioned before, is a database which can be searched both by company or by place. If you just Take a little time and scroll down and look at all the different search options. It's pretty intuitive. You can look up your county, your city, individual programs, individual companies. It's very facile. Uh, Good Jobs First has in the past done quite a bit of work in smart growth. One is that we've created more studies mapping the location of incentive deals than anybody in the world, to our knowledge. We've actually looked at uh, 13 different metro areas in several states, asking the question, what do these deals do for people getting to work by transit? What do they do for communities of color? 
what do they do for communities that have been most profoundly affected by plant closings and mass layoffs mm. or have tax base stress or high unemployment? And the answer, especially in big metro areas like Detroit and the Twin Cities and Chicago and Cleveland, is that they are very pro-sprawl. That is, the incentives are mostly favoring uh, wealthy suburbs. In some cases, they're actually moving companies out of distressed areas into more affluent areas, right. away from transit service, away from plant closing areas, uh, doing the opposite of what you'd think an economic revitalization uh, expenditure should be doing. Yeah. And another database you'll see linked to is called Tax Rate Tracker, which is an even more granular database for places. It's, it's all about places, states, cities, counties, school districts, and specifically how much revenue they lose to corporate welfare. We're mm-hmm. very proud of the fact that we helped, we spearheaded a reform uh, in government bookkeeping, essentially, where governments, most governments now have to report in their spending budget reports how much revenue they lose to corporate welfare. And it's a whole new world out there of uh, sort of cost-benefit accounting. And we're very <laughs> proud of that. Excellent. Again, they're all great resources. If you're listening to this show, you have my personal guarantee that you <laughs> that, <laughs> that coming upon these databases will at the very least interest you, if not enrage you or spur you into action. Um, you will you will find it interesting, I assure you. And send you down a rabbit hole where you'll look yeah. up four hours later and wonder where you've been. <laughs> Do it on a work uh, slow work day uh, or on a weekend because it'll yeah you'll be there for a while going down that rabbit hole for sure. Um, well, this is great, Greg. I really appreciate it. Again, really valuable uh, and important information for folks to understand here that I think it it really just kind of goes over their heads too easily in, in the midst of uh, of these deals that, that go down, to your point. But it's crucial for them to know it. So I thank you again. Economic is far too important to be left to mayors and site location consultants and secretive companies. Yeah, it yeah. belongs in the public square. And we, we get, we're dragging it out of the, the shadows and into the sunlight. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for doing that work. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks again to Greg for that transfer of knowledge. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack, and thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. Hot takes and hot guests are always welcome. Get in touch at Telekinetic Show on Twitter or TelekineticShow.com. Take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.